Good morning. If you got a Bible, would you meet me in Nehemiah chapter 8? Book of Nehemiah chapter 8. We will be continuing our study in this book that we're calling Rebuilding a People, a City. And today we're in chapter 8. While you're making your way there, uh, many of you know that... um, my wife's brother, older brother, Chucky, passed away last Saturday. Um, and Gail and Darren, that's their uh, brother as well. And so um, the services for Charles Page is going to be this coming Friday, starting at 12, is that right? Um, at Cornerstone Community Church of God of Christ in Marin City. Um, so, um, and... If you want to come and support them, they're in need of a few things. So if um, you would like to help with a few things, you will see me after. I'll let you know what's needed. But um, that service is uh, this Friday in Marin City, um, starting at 12. Um, And just be praying for the family. We've been there um, for the last week, and they're doing well in good spirits, very sudden, and... um, But it's amazing to see how God's grace um, has been covering my wife during this time. Um, It's been amazing. I I have been um, amazed at how God does that um, during times like this. So, Nehemiah chapter 8, we're going to read starting at verse 1. Nehemiah chapter 8, beginning at verse 1. All the people assembled as one man in the square before the water gate. They told Ezra the scribe to bring out the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded for Israel. So on the first day of the seventh month, Ezra, the priest, brought the law before the assembly, which was made up of men and women and all who were able to understand. He read it aloud from daybreak till noon, as he faced the square before the water gate in the presence of the men, women, and others who could understand. And all the people listened attentively to the book of the law. Ezra, the scribe, stood on a high wooden platform built for the occasion. Beside him, on his right, stood Madahiah, Shema, Anariah, Uriah, Hilkiah, and Messiah. And on his left were Padiah, Mishael, Melchizedek, Hashem, Hasbanana, Zechariah, and Mishalem. Hopefully they do nothing else. (laughs) Ezra opened the book. All the people could see him because he was standing above them. And as he opened it, all the people stood up. Ezra praised the Lord, the great God, and all the people lifted their hands and responded, Amen, Amen. Then they bowed down and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. The Levites, Jeshua, Benai, Sherebiah, Jamin, Akub, Shepathai, Hodiah, Messiah, Kalida, Azariah, Josabad, Hanan, and Peliah, hopefully they do nothing else, <laughs> instructed the people in the law while the people were standing there. They read from the book of from the law of God, making it clear and giving the meaning so that the people could understand what was being read. Then Nehemiah the governor, Ezra, the priest and scribe, and the Levites who were instructing the people said to them all, This day is sacred to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep, for all the people had been weeping as they listened to the words of the law. Nehemiah said, go and enjoy choice food and sweet drinks and send some to those who have nothing prepared. This day is sacred to our Lord. Do not grieve, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. The Levites calmed all the people, saying, be still, for this is a sacred day. Do not grieve. Then all the people went away to eat and drink, to send portions of food, and to celebrate with great joy because they now understood the words that had been made known to them. On the second day of the month, the heads of all the families, along with the priests and the Levites, gathered around Ezra the scribe to give attention to the words of the law. 
They found written in the law which the Lord had commanded through Moses that the Israelites were to live in booths during the feast of the seventh month, and that they should proclaim this word and spread it throughout their towns and in Jerusalem. Go out into the hill country and bring back branches from olive and wild olive trees and from myrtles and palms and shade trees to make booths as it is written. So the people went out and brought back branches and built, them, built themselves booths on their own roofs in their courtyards, in the courts of the house of God, and in the square by the water gate, and the one by the gate of Ephraim. The whole company that had returned from exile built booths and lived in them. From the days of Joshua son of Nun until that day, the Israelites had not celebrated it like this, and their joy was very great. Day after day, from the first day to the last, Ezra read from the book of the law of God. They celebrated the feast for seven days, and on the eighth day, in accordance with the regulation, there was an assembly. It's the word of the Lord. What is the greatest need for the church? What is the greatest need for the church? Titling my message, Bring Out the Book. What's the greatest need for the church? Now, if I were to, let me ask it differently. If when we leave from this service, you go out to your car and you realize as you try and turn the key that the battery is dead. What is your greatest need in that moment? You need a jump. Now, people can bring you water. They can bring you candy. They can bring you all kinds of things that you might want. But in that moment, what you need more than anything is a jump. Because your car's dead, your battery's dead. And I believe more than anything, what the church needs is a jump. The church needs to have fresh life breathed into them. The word we would use for this is the word revival. The church needs revival. The church I see is like a car sitting in a parking lot doing nothing because the battery is dead and it needs new life. It needs a jump. We need revival. Now that word is thrown around a lot, revival. But what is revival? What is revival? And I've used this definition from Kevin DeYoung for years. And this is what true revival is. True revival is a sovereign, swift, extraordinary work of God whereby he saves sinners and breathes new life into his people. This is what revival is. It's a sovereign. Now, these words are chosen very carefully. It's a sovereign, which means God's in control of it. It's swift, which means it happens very, very quickly. It's extraordinary, which means it's really crazy what God does. But I want you to notice that it says it is a work of God. Revival is something that God does. Now, listen, what many of you, if you grew up in church, you know that you've been to what's called a revival. You've been to church services throughout the week, or you've been inside of a tent or something like that. And a revival for the church is something that the church does in respect to those who are outside of the church with evangelism. It's more of an evangelistic campaign. We invite people to come hear the gospel. Revivalism, or that kind of revival, is more focused on evangelism. It's something that the church does with respect to those on the outside. But revival, true revival, is not something the church does. Revival, true revival, is something God does to the church. So what this means is that you cannot schedule revival. You can't say, we're going to have revival October 3rd through the 6th. Because it's not something that you can just schedule. You can't pencil it in. You can't put it, you can't say, Siri, we're going to be a revival. Put it in my calendar. You can't do it. Because revival is a sovereign, swift, extraordinary work of God where he saves sinners and he breathes new life into his people. And so this is something that God does. This is not something that man does. And so what we're going to be looking at in this passage, what we just read, is Nehemiah chapter 8 is the recording of one of the great revivals in the Bible and really ever. We see the people of God 
returning to the work, to the word of God. And so this is going to be my point for the entire sermon, and all of my points are going to flow from this point. And that's this. True revivals happen when the people of God return to the word of God as the source of authority, delight, and joy in their lives. When God sends revival, the people of God return to the word of God as the source of authority, joy, and delight in their lives. Now I want you to, to notice with me that when we're talking about revival, there's a danger. And the danger is what would be called counterfeit revival. It's possible sometimes that what people call revival is not really truly revival. In fact, during the mid-90s, there was a um, so-called revival that was, it started in Brownsville and Toronto and Pensacola, Florida. And even recently, there was another one that was happening in Florida. And do you know what the, the draw was of these so-called revivals? Strange phenomenon. They said, God is moving. Come to these churches. Everybody's flocking. And you know what was central in these meetings? First of all, you walk into these meetings, and people were what they call slain in the spirit. So they would have somebody stand up there, and they would say, oh, and they hit you on the head, and you fall on the ground. And one guy called himself the Holy Ghost bartender. And he's just knocking people over. They said they call being glued to the floor in the spirit. Someone just on the ground, and they can't move because the Holy Spirit is gluing them to the floor. What else happened? They said, gold dust is falling from the sky, from heaven. So people said, it's gold dust. It's revival. People said, angel feathers falling from heaven. And people were picking them up. It's revival. People, I'm not even making this up, people were barking like dogs. Coming into the church of God is like coming into old McDonald's farm. People are just on the floor barking and mooing. <laughs> Worship team is singing old McDonald's. This, this is what they call revival. But what was, what was actually the draw? All these crazy phenomena. But what in all revivals... What God is doing is he has the people of God return to the word of God. What's central in true revival is the centrality of the word of God and the preaching of God's word. Not all these, pheno- these crazy weird phenomenon. Now I'm not saying that God can't do things that are beyond our understanding or comprehension, but when it comes to revival, God says my word is central. And that's what we're going to see here. So we need to be careful that when we're looking for revival, we're not looking to some of these other kinds of things that put the emphasis on the wrong thing. So what does real, true revival look like? And again, I want you to see how these people return to God. So I want to make five observations about this revival. Number one, I want you to see that they were hungry for the word of God. They were hungry for the word of God. Now in chapter 6, where we left off, they completed the walls in 52 days. And in chapter 7, which we didn't read, Nehemiah starts to rebuild the city. The city had been desolate. It was large and spacious, but nobody's really living there. So he started this project to get people back into the city, get police force going, get the economy going, schools, get food, all that going on so that the, that the, the city could come back to life again. And so in chapter 7, you read of of how Nehemiah is doing that. And then you get to to chapter 8, and it says that all the people, they come to the water gate. And what is it that they're coming to do? You notice in verse 1, it says that all the people assembled as one man in the square before the water gate. And what did they say to Ezra? They told Ezra, the scribe, to bring out the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded of Israel. What was it that the people wanted Ezra to bring out? Bring out the book. Who asked for the book to be brought out? They did. Normally it's the pastor who's saying, please come to Bible study. Please come to this. 
They said, well, we want you to come and preach to us. This is like you guys telling the pastor, we're going to be here at church at 6 o'clock on Thursday, and we want you to come and read God's word and preach to us. Please do. <laughs> this is crazy. It's a revival. Do you know how many people have showed up here? 50,000. This is, remember, it's, a, it's extraordinary work of God. They probably had Bible studies when they were seven. And Ezra opened up the book, said, hey, you know, I'm, I'm here to teach. I'm here to be faithful to God's word. And then one day he's in his office. He knocked the knock on the door. Ezra, uh, the people are here. So, okay, I'll be out there in a minute. I know you need to come out here and see. And 50,000 people have said, Ezra, bring out the book. We want to hear you preach from God's word. This is the work of God. It's a revival. And one of the ways you know God has sent revival is when the people of God are not asking for angel feathers and gold dust. Rather, they're saying, bring out the Psalms, bring out the Gospels, bring out God's word. This desire for God's word had swept through the entire community like a stomach bug, and everybody is wanting to hear the word of God, not drama, not somebody giving their own opinions. We want to hear what does God say. They're hungry for God's word, extremely hungry for God's word. And I want you to notice who the they were. It says they. And then it it says in the following verses that it was men, women, and all who were able to understand. So there's men, it's women, and that leaves one other category, children or youth. Here's the idea. Ezra didn't say, all right, children, go to children's church. Now, we're not against children's church. We have children's church. But even in the Old Testament, as you read, the men would come before Moses, the women, and the children. Even when you read Paul's letters, he says, husbands, love your wives. Wives, submit to your husbands. Masters, Deal right with your slaves. Slaves, obey your Then he goes, children. Which means the children were there listening as the, the letter was being written. Which means they were in the service. So the idea here is that God, when God sends revival, revival is not an adult thing. It involves the students will be here on the front row with their Bibles open, ready to learn. Again, we're not against children's church, but we do believe that there is something that happens when kids are able to see the church of God worshiping, hear the church of God praying. Because what happens is if you spend your whole life in children's church listening to veggie tales and singing silly songs, you might not ever grow up to know the God of Scripture. And you get to college and you say, where are all the pictures? I'm used to pictures. At some point, this is why sometimes we have the children staying here. Because they were hungry for God's word. So men, women, children, they're all there listening to God's word. Secondly, I want you to notice that they listened attentively to the word of God. They were attentive to the word of God. It tells us that they stood from daybreak until noon. That's five to six hours. They are standing outside in the heat. I love Disneyland. But I call Disneyland Disney Stand or Disney Line because pretty much all you do all day is you stand in line. And you are in line for 40 minutes to get on something that lasts 30 seconds. Ridiculous. But millions and millions and millions of people do it. And billions and billions and billions of dollars are are spent to stand in line for five to six hours. When we went to Disneyland this last time, we were on our feet walking for 15 hours. When that was over, I said, never again. (laughs) Or we'd be here this long. But these people, they came to the worship service and they were standing for five to six 
hours as the word of God was being read. What if you came to church today and there were no chairs? You would leave. Could you imagine we said, we're, not, we're no longer, we're going to be changing our name of the church in the near future. What if we change, no chair community church. People are like, if you get to that church, you got to get there early because maybe you can get on a wall. That's the only way you could be there. <laughs> but if, if that was what happened, you come to church and there's no chairs, you would leave. So I'm going down to the church down the street. They have chairs. And they stood for five to six hours to listen to God's word. I'm not hating on you. I'm just saying some of you are so quick to sit down. Don't let there be a break. We say, all right, let's pray. And everybody, ooh, I see. And I'm not saying that <laughs> I'm not saying that you don't have aches and pains and your joints ain't hurting and you got your arthritis and all that. But these people were standing outside in the heat. Yes. And as soon as we break worship, y'all be, oh, ooh. And nothing wrong with you. They stood. Why? Because they wanted to give honor and respect to the word of God. As Ezra opened up the book and read it, it said that the people stood up. You ever been to churches where they say to stand for the reading of God's word? That's where it comes from. Now, it's not a command. So the Bible doesn't tell us when God's word is being read, we have to stand up. Because we don't do that here, if you haven't noticed. We don't stand. But it's a good thing to do, I think, because it helps us to understand that when God's word is being read, we need to show some kind of respect. And that's a way for us to do it. So these people, they're standing, standing for the reading of God's word. Do you remember? I I don't, but I kind of do. Do you remember when guys, when a lady would come to the table? They would stand. And when the lady left from her table, they would stand. I, anybody still do that? I don't. <laughs> they get up, I'll be like, oh, you going, you leaving? <laughs> That's all right. There's a woman who is a manner coach. She teaches guys and girls how to have manners. This is what she says. This is amazing. Standing up sends a signal from across the room that you're willing and eager to greet and meet and welcome the other person into your here and now. It speaks well of you even before you've had an opportunity to say your first word because it shows by your action that you are a welcoming person. And she says this, whether it's a social conversation, a business meeting, or a meal, It sends the message that you've noticed the person and they're worth your effort to rise from your comfortable sitting position to meet and welcome them. Then she says this, when you stand, you literally rise to the occasion of showing respect to them. Now she's talking about regular raggedy human beings. We're not even talking about the God of the universe. It's, it's, a, it's a way of showing respect to stand. In fact, Colin Kaepernick is in trouble right now for not standing. People saw it as disrespect, even though it was his right. They said, because you're not standing, you're showing some kind of disrespect. So what is it when we come into God's house What is a way that we can show respect to God and to his word? By standing. Again, this is not something that we're saying you have to do all the time. But we are saying that it is a way for you to show respect. And I love the fact, five to six hours. This is five to six hours of preaching and teaching. That is the preacher's dream. You will sit there for five to six hours as I talk. I pray for this all the time and that people wouldn't leave or fall asleep. And the text says they were attentive to the word of God. Attentive. 
One pastor, he tells a story, he, there's a, <clears throat> a preacher that he really loved to listen to. Him and his wife would go to listen to him when they had the chance, because he was a pastor himself. And so they go to this service to hear this pastor preach, and as he's sitting there, the, the guy's preaching, and he's into it, and he hears this noise from behind him. He's like, what, what is that noise? And as the sermon goes on, he's still sitting there, and, and his wife nudges him, don't do it, don't look back. Just focus. And he's sitting there, and he's like, ah, I'm sorry, I, I, can't, I, can't, I can't, I have to look. So he turns, and behind him is a man, a distinguished man, a man that he knew, who's sitting here as this word is going forth. This man is preaching his heart out. He's a very skilled preacher. And this man behind him is clipping his fingernails. The man is up there proclaiming. He, that's the sound he's hearing. When God sends revival, no one will be clipping their fingernails. He tells stories of people even painting their fingernails during the sermon. Now, for for some of us, it's not that. It's Facebook. It's the score of the game. But when God sends revival, you will not care what's going on in the sports world because God will be speaking. So here again is... They are being attentive to God's word as it is being preached. Because when we're gathering to hear, you're not coming to hear the words of a man. If you came to hear the words of a man, you came to the wrong place. We have come to hear the word of God. Listen to how Paul says it in 1 Thessalonians 2.13. He says, and we thank God continually because when you receive the word of God, which you heard from us, You accepted it, not as the word of men, but as it actually is the word of God, which is at work in you who believe. So let me say to you, do all that you can to be attentive to the word of God. If you have to drink coffee, do that. If you have to drink a monster like I do, do that. If you have to take a caffeine pill to stay up, if you have to eliminate distractions, if you have to turn off your phone, do that because we're not coming to hear the words of a man. We're coming to hear the word of God. So let me give you three ways that you can be more attentive to the word of God. And I'm taking these from James chapter one. How can you be more attentive to the word of God? Number one, you got to get rid of moral filth. If you are in moral compromise, if you are doing things on Saturday night or even Sunday morning that are compromising, you will have a hard time being able to hear God's word. There is something about when you're in worship and those thoughts go through your mind, and as a person is preaching, you cannot hear what that individual is saying. Secondly, you need to listen. Be quick to listen. Some people talk too much. Last week I was talking to somebody, and in the middle of the conversation I realized, you're not listening to me. So I just started going, "Mm mm-hmm, 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 because they're not listening. And I know it sounds weird to say, come to church and listen to the sermon, but some people, when you come to church, you're not listening. And then third, this is, I think, one of the most important, you need to get rid of anger. It's hard for you to hear the message when you are upset. And you guys know, when you're married, you have disagreements. And this one time, me and my wife, we had a disagreement. And I wasn't very fond of coming back home. So I said, I'm going to go and see a movie. I'm not going home. Because she, she, you know, she wanted me to apologize. And I said, I, you actually need to be the one to apologize. So it was a standoff. So I'm like, you know, I'm going to a movie. I'm going to go and try and enjoy myself because what she wants me to do is apologize. And I could go and say, I'm sorry for the way you perceive me to have done something wrong. But that wouldn't go over well. So I said, let me, let me not do that. <laughs> Why are you upset? You know. I don't know. <laughs> Just tell me. Husbands, you better, you better be with me on this. Y'all, y'all being quiet. <laughs> don't, let me, don't let me get started. 
So I'm going to go see Spider-Man. I'm going to go see Spider-Man. And so I'm in the movie theater, and I'm sitting there, and I'm trying to watch this movie. Everybody says it's an amazing movie, and I'm just sitting there, and I'm just upset. And then you know how I believe that it's the responsibility of the man to initiate reconciliation. Even if I'm right. Or even if I'm wrong. I need to be the one to initiate that. So I'm sitting there in the movie theater, and I'm thinking, you know what? And let me apologize. And my way of apologizing is like, let me just bring you something to eat or something or some candy or something like that. So I know there was no food to house, so I just text her. I say, hey, babe, do um, you want me to bring a pizza? And this is her response. No, thanks. Now I'm even more upset. I know ain't no food at the house. And a funny story, I got to the house. She had went out to KFC and got her own food. So I'm watching this movie, and I cannot focus on the movie. I am so upset. And people are asking me, how, how was the movie? I said, it was horrible. All the women in there were just upset about everything. It just... Changed the way I was, I was watching this movie. I had to see it twice. Now all I'm saying is that when you are upset and when you are angry, it changes how you view things and how you hear things. If you're coming to church and you're mad and you're upset, I don't care what the preacher is saying, you won't be hearing it because you'll be thinking about that person you're upset with. When we used to work um, at Marin City. We used to um, set up the chairs and tear down and take up. And one Sunday, Oren used to come and help us. And so he, he drives up with Mikhail in the car. He closed the door and Mikhail speeds off. <laughs> and I said, said uh-oh. <laughs> I said, oh. said Oren, what's going on? He said, marriage, bruh. And I said, okay, okay. So we in church, setting up the chairs. He's setting up the chairs, all aggressive. <laughs> I said, okay. And during that whole service, you can just see, it was hard for him to, to, to hear, to listen. That was a long way of just saying, when you come to church, if you are upset, if you are mad, if there are things in your mind that are causing you to distract, you need to get rid of that. Because if there's something in your house, a relationship, your wife, I cannot preach knowing my wife is, um, is mad at me. I will always say, babe, I, I'm, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Because I don't want when I'm preaching her to be looking at me crazy. <laughs> Everybody else is smiling and amen. She just, look at you. Look at you. <laughs> so all that to say, your anger. All right. Observation number three. Observation number three. They responded physically and emotionally to the word of God. They responded physically and emotionally to the word of God. As Ezra reads from the book of the law, it says that they stood up, they were saying amen, and they put their faces to the ground. This, notice, this is the lifting up of their hands and the saying amen and the face to the ground is not in response to a worship song. Because sometimes we think the lifting up of our hands has to do with a, a soft pad playing and someone just, you know, goes, mm. but they're responding not to that, but to God's word. And it says they said amen, which simply means so be it. In other words, when we come to church and we're hearing God's word, we need to respond. We need to respond physically, and we need to respond emotionally. Andy Stanley, you guys might not know him. He's the son of Charles Stanley. He had an atheist friend come to his church and listen to his message. And at the end, he said, hey, what's the Christian cow thing? He said, the Christian cow thing? He said, yeah, what's the Christian cow thing? He said, yeah, I was sitting in the, in the congregation, and everybody, while you're preaching, was going, mmm. Mmm. <laughs> mmm. He said, oh, yeah, that's how we agree. 
That's how we say we're with you. We, 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 we are agreeing with what you're saying. And in church, it's good to say amen. It's good to respond to what God is doing. And let me just say this, and, and this is very important. God is too great to be responded to casually. God is too great to be responded to casually. This last week we've had this solar eclipse, and people were going crazy. A, a highway patrolman posted a picture of people stopped on the freeway to get out their cars and take pictures and to, to look at this solar eclipse. And people are buying glasses, they're taking off work just so they can see the solar eclipse. Going crazy. And they have no regard for the one who made the sun and the moon. They're just doing this. He said, be, and they became. And they respond casually to that guy. So God, he's way too great for us to be responding to casually. If you had a a group of 16-year-old high school players in a gym and Steph Curry walks in, how would they react? They would be elated. Because Steph Curry, they wouldn't say, oh, okay. It's not Tom who works at Shell Gas Station. It's Steph Curry. And God, he is too great to be responded to casually. So as they're hearing God's word, they're saying, amen, praise God. They're being convicted and they're falling on their faces before God. And they are weeping because they're hearing how far they had fallen from what God had called them to do. One man writes about the uh, Irish revival in 1859. Listen to what he says. He says, people became so weak that they could not get back to their homes. Men and women would fall by the wayside and would be found hours later pleading with God to save their souls. They felt that they were slipping into hell and that nothing else in life mattered but to get right with God. To them, eternity meant everything. Nothing else was of any consequence. They felt that if God did not have mercy on them and save them, they were doomed for all time to come. When God sins revival, those are the kind of reactions. People are not sitting there stoically, like statues as they listen to God's word. They're responding to it emotionally and physically. Fourth observation They obeyed the word of God. They obeyed the word of God. Now in verses 7 and 8, look there. The Levites, I'm not going to read their names. They they instructed the people in the law while the people were standing there. They read from the book of the law of God, making it clear and giving the meaning so that people could understand what was being read. What you see happening here in verses 7 and 8 is what we would call expository preaching. Expository preaching is just a fancy big word to just simply means this. Expository preaching is when you allow the text of scripture to set the agenda for the sermon. In other words, you do not come to the Bible and say, what do I want to say? But rather, what has God said? So whatever your sermon is going to be about has to be what the text says. And you have to do work. What did it mean in its original context? Literary, grammar, there's culture. And you've got to take it and then make it applicable to those today. But you allow the text. So you don't come to the scripture saying, what is it that I want to say? But rather, what is this saying? And that's what I need to say to people. People get this wrong. When we were in San Diego for a vacation a couple years ago, we visited... Um, one of the fastest growing, largest churches. And I knew the pastor because we, when I was in seventh grade, we saw him at a youth camp. And that, it changed my life from that day because, one, he was just really engaging and funny, but he also played football. So I was just very, very enamored with him. And so from that day, that camp, I was, I was absolutely changed. So I always wanted to visit his church. So I went to his church, and they were doing something called God at the Movies. And so when I walk in, we, we walk into this place, and the smell of popcorn was filling the auditorium, the outside. And Iron Man and Captain America were walking around the lobby because it's God at the movies. And so we checked Noah in, and we got into the service. And again, I wasn't against that. It's fine if you want to do that. So the worship was amazing. And then they got to the part of the message, and he happened to not be there that day. But the, it started out with the, uh, the movie Rogue One playing. So they start playing this clip of Rogue One. 
I'm saying, oh, this is how they're opening the sermon. They're going to have this as a, as a bumper to the sermon. And as we keep watching, it's going on for a while. And it keeps going on. I start thinking, are we, are we watching this movie? And then finally it kind of stopped, and then the pastor, he comes on screen, and he starts talking, and he starts to talk about some of the principles that we saw in that clip and how it relates to the Bible. And then there would be another clip, and they would start watching it again, and then he would come back, and he would have scriptures, and he would, you know, say how this relates. And so as we were driving home, wife asked, well, how'd you, how'd you like it? I said, I mean, it was great atmosphere, loved the worship, but there's something about that message that just... It, bothered me and what was bothering me was it seemed like the authority was not the scripture the authority was the movie and they were just bringing along the word of God to say oh yeah and the word of God also says something about this that that's not what we're supposed to do and in defense of the preacher he doesn't do this all the time he preaches from the Bible but that is what some people do when they come to scripture they have something they want to say and then they bring God's word along to say how can I find what God would agree with me what I want to say rather than what God says and so when this is happening this is preaching he's explaining the word of God he's teaching the word of God and the Levites they're also teaching and explaining the word of God when it says that The, the people were standing there, they read the book of the law, making it clear, giving the meaning so that the people can understand what was being read. We're not sure what was going on. Remember, there's 50,000 people here. And how is it that they're dealing with all these people? And what most people believe is that as Ezra was reading, as Ezra was preaching, the Levites would go into the crowd and then they would begin to ask people, do you understand what's being read? Do you understand? If they didn't, they would explain it to them. It said they were making clear And there's a little note that says translating, because a lot of these Jews, they grew up in captivity in Babylon. So they didn't, all of them didn't know Hebrew. And so they had to translate the Hebrew Bible into Aramaic so that they could understand what was being read. And it's, do you understand this? Are you getting this? So there's the preaching, and then there's underneath that, do you get it? Do you understand? This is what we do in cell group. There's the preaching of God's word here on Sunday morning, and then on Wednesdays, we gather in groups, and the Levites, which would be your Sunday school and your subgroup leaders, if there's something you don't get or something you don't understand, they help you. And you, if you've been to subgroup, you know, just great conversation. So you can say, the preacher was out there talking about this, I didn't get it. And you can be um, instructed. So if there's something you don't understand, normally in preaching, it's not right for you guys to be asking me questions. But the perfect opportunity for you to ask questions is in cell group, in this smaller group where you can get instruction. And so this is what's going on in in this moment. And here, the goal is understanding. If you notice over and over, he keeps saying, and the people were understanding what was being taught, was being read. The goal was understanding. We're not here to just hear something good. We're here to understand. It makes no sense for you to go home and somebody say, how was church? It was great. What did he talk about? I don't know. He said something about God. The goal is understanding. The goal of communication is understanding. You ever, I have to do this now where if I don't hear what somebody says, I need to ask them, okay, what did you say? Because you ever act like you heard what they said? <laughs> so they say something, you go, ha, 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 ha. And they're like, do you? You're like, I'm sorry, I don't know what you said. <laughs> It's better to say, I don't know what you said. Because the goal is understanding. And if you don't understand what I'm saying, if you don't understand what my dad's saying, you don't understand what anybody is saying, there's a place for you to say, can somebody explain this to me? Because this is the goal. And what they found out was, as the teaching and the preaching of God's word is going forward, what they found out was that there was this feast of tabernacles that they were supposed to be participating in. They were supposed to be doing. This festival would happen on the 15th day, and it was a way for them to remember how God had taken them from, Israel, uh, from Egypt and taken them to the promised land. And while in the wilderness, they built tabernacles or booths. And it was a visual picture of how God had protected for them, had cared for them. And so they were supposed to be doing this. And as the teaching of God's word is going on, they realize we haven't been doing this. So what do they do? They obey it. They go out and they start doing it. And when God sends revival, the people of God look at the word of God as authoritative and they begin to do what God has said we're supposed to do. 
If they haven't been praying, you begin to pray. Giving skyrockets because people haven't been giving. The, the whole city is peppered with the people of God because they're sharing their faith. And they don't care what they look like. Could you imagine building a booth? It said on their roofs, in the, court, um, in the courts, out in the street. And, and it was just a way of saying, and everybody was doing this. Not just a few. Everybody was doing this. And so God, when he sends revival, there is an obedience to God's word. And then lastly, they responded joyfully to the word of God. They responded joyfully to the word of God. As they're hearing God's word, the people of God, as we've seen, were falling on their faces and they were crying and they were weeping because of what God had said and how far they had fallen from God's word. But did you notice what Nehemiah and Ezra and the Levites said? They said, stop. Stop crying. Stop mourning. Stop. Why? The first day of the seventh month, God had given them what is called the Feast of Trumpets. And the Feast of Trumpets was a day of celebration where they were to blow trumpets all day, take the day off, and just chill because of God's goodness and because of God's mercy and because of God's grace. We said, well, wait a minute. The, there, there's sin there. There's, there's, they're falling on their face because of the, the conviction of God and the Holy Spirit. That's true. But do you know why God said, I want you to celebrate from the first day of the month up into the 10th? Because on the 10th day of the seventh month, was a day of atonement. And Nehemiah and Ezra said, get up off the ground. Yes, you are sinners. Yes, there are issues in your life. But listen, atonement is coming. Your sins will be taken care of. A priest will come and put on this sacrificial animal the sins of all the people and God will cover over your sins. So this is not a time to be on the floor. This is not a time to be sad. This is a time to rejoice. This is a time to be happy. I don't know where we got the idea that Christians are supposed to be sad, sour, frowning people. Where did we get that? That is not in the Bible. That's not biblical. We are not supposed to be sad, dreary people, always frowning. The Lord is, he is he's here. You guys remember that old Cosby episode when Rudy was telling her fairy tale of the happy people and the nasty people? The happy people, they were always singing songs. They were always happy, eating fluberoos. And then there were the nasty people. They were always upset. They were always mad. And they had that song. We don't like the day. We can't stand the night. We don't like to play. We only like to fight. And we'll do it in your face. <laughs> I'm the only one who remembers that. And they just, they, that's not how Christians are supposed to be. Christians should be the most joyful people on the planet. The world should not be able to outdo us when it comes to joy. No one should be able to outdo us when it comes to joy. Why? Because there is sin. Yes, we are in trouble before holy God. But atonement has been made. Jesus has paid the debt. He says in the New Testament, it says that our sins were laid upon him. He is the sacrificial lamb. That great high priest who comes and he makes intercession for us. Atonement is coming. Yes, we're sinners. Yes, we're messed up. But God has grace for us. Atonement is coming. We should not be sad. And we should not be a dreary, morbid people. We should be happy because what God has done. Because atonement has come. Forgiveness is here. The cross speaks forgiveness over us. And so he tells them, now... Go out and rejoice. Go and eat. Eat the fat. You know what the fat is? Bacon. If you're a vegan, I'm sorry. 
It's not biblical. <laughs> you better eat the fat. And then he said, enjoy sweet drinks. Now, let me be expository. It's, it's wine. Don't do that. It's wine. Don't get drunk. But he says wine. I'm just doing expository preaching. He says wine. Enjoy that. So when we leave from this place, we should not be leaving sad and jury. Go out and eat and rejoice that God has saved us. Go to BJ's. Go to BJ's and you get there and you order a clam chowder with a little oyster, oyster crackers and then a Caesar salad. And then you get a Shirley Temple. Extra cherries. Then what do you want next? I want a buffalo chicken pizza. And then top it off with snickerdoodle pizuki. And you get all these spoons so everybody can share. And we can rejoice in the fact that we have been saved. And, And Nehemiah says if there are people who don't have food, they don't have it, bring them along. If you go to BJ's and you want to bring me along, I'm not going to fight you. (laughs) Now, I have a black car. And I don't know, because I can only talk about my own experience, keeping a black car clean is difficult. And when you're driving around, there's um, dirt that just gets on your car. You're not trying to get it on there. It just happens. So I got a membership to Wash to Go. And I go to Wash to Go, and I drive up to the thing, and it says, I'm now verifying your membership. And they put a little chip in my windshield. And on this windshield is a chip that it reads to let them know that I'm a member, and it says paid. Now, it comes out of my bank account, but it feels free to me. (laughs) And I go through this, and I get there to the car wash, and two guys come, and they start to clean my car, and I go through... It's car wash and they triple foam and all kinds of things. They clean the tires, they clean the windows, and then there's a blow dry, and then there's a, a, a nice little, I got the most expensive ones. I want the works. So they clean all of it, and it's all dry. And all of the dirt that was on my car, when I went into that car wash, is gone when I get out. It's all gone. And here's what I love. Because I have a membership, I can go back through that, Wash to go as many times as I want. There's no limit to how much I can go through that wash to go. Christian, you have your own wash to go. And when you come to that wash to go, it says, now verifying your membership. And we have been granted access into the family of God by the blood of Jesus. And when we walk through that wash to go, all of our sins are washed away. What does he say in 1 John 1, 9? Confess your sins. He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us, to purify us from all unrighteousness. And there is no limit to how much you can go into that wash to go to have God cleanse all of your sins. So today, as we, as we leave here, we're not leaving here with sadness. We're going to get to chapter 9 where there is repentance. There's a time for that. There's a time for contrition. There's a time for that. But there's a time to rejoice because atonement has come.